get really good like nerdy information on like a Skype call? I think there is. I forgot how to enable. There's somebody to enable that. It'll show you just like all the network stats and what your like round trip. What's it called? Um, latency and all that stuff is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway. Okay, so you're tired. I've been, I've been tired too, man. I, I uh, third third night I haven't gotten good sleep, and but I do feel about man. Yesterday, whew, I barely made it through yesterday. I was not a nice person yesterday. <laughs> kind of feel bad, but I think I've been hibernating. I've been hiding away from my family. Like I just I finished up work. Well, yeah, I finished up work. Had some dinner. Uh, did a few more things on the computer, and then went to bed and laid down. And watch some stupid stuff on YouTube. That was my evening. Well, John, happy uh, 250. 250. That's right. 250 yep. episodes, huh? I don't have any yep. montages planned, so sorry. You got to wait till quarter. the next 50. So when we hit 300. It's a quarter of a thousand. That's like, crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> do you, yeah, do you listen to any, do you listen to any podcasts that are really high? Like, like what's no agenda up to? No agenda show what's their url i think like a thousand or something probably internet internet's not <laughs> great um they are at 1231 wow and you got the cloud focus guys i think they were over 300 that's crazy yeah but then they started like 10 but, years I ago mean, didn't they frequency matters though if you're a daily podcast then those numbers don't mean much that's true. Like, what's isn't Joe Rogan? Like, is any one of these? What are the what are the everyday ones? Is he um, Rogan? Might be everyday. I don't know. I haven't listened to him in forever, though. Not that I. Yeah, that was like reason that's, that's to, like I the just, one podcast that you claim you listen to, but you never listen to fourteen hundred and fifty five episodes. I just haven't been listening to any podcasts lately. Sometimes I don't even listen to our own. I don't think you like <laughs> podcasts. Uh, do, you, do you ever listen to ours? Do you like? Do you listen back? Sometimes. Yeah, I, I will. I, 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 I cringe, mean, what, though, because sometimes I'm like, I, I said something stupid. I'm stupid. I did something stupid. I'm stupid. So I just, <clears throat> I try not to put that on myself. So I just record mm. it, and I'm like, okay, it is what it is, and we're done. Move yeah. On. No, but I, my, most of my podcast time was when I would get out and ride my bike, and I have not done that for months. Why? I don't understand. The weather's been great, John. Get out and ride your bike, man. I'm afraid of the corona. I don't want to get the no, corona. No, you're not. I'll, I'll be out there heavy now. breathing with people within distance, and I just don't want to get it. <laughs> you're so full of crap. People are gross and rude, and th- I don't uh, like them. It's not like someone's just, you're riding your bike, and someone just tackles you and spits in your face. Is that what you think happens? It's airborne in, in little moisture particles. Mm, whatever. There's That's why you have to be six feet away. Yeah. A lot of the data now. The masks are to protect this, this, this people is a, from, from you. This is a hand to face virus. It's a hand to face transmission. Hand to face. No. By the way, I I do have to apologize to everyone. Uh, it is annoying. We so John, we you and I've been recording over Skype. And speaking of that latency, I was just asking about. We do have a about a half a second round trip, and I noticed that we like you know we've been kind of. Uh, talking over each other a little bit, and mm-hmm. but it's not that we mean to. It's that I start talking, you don't hear me talking, you start talking, and then I'm like, okay, do I stop? Do you stop? Like, who stops? <laughs> well, it's like it was in the old days. It is. Except I was trying, there were times where I was actually trying to interrupt you. <laughs> but more often than not, it was just the delay. Yeah, no, you're an asshole. You were interrupting on purpose. <clears throat> I had to. You wouldn't stop talking. Whatever. I'm not you, that bad. I don't have that much to say. Oh, whatever. You get on a subject and you go. If I get on something. Anyway, can you believe we've been doing this for 250 episodes? We, and we, of course, we passed our, what was it, our five-year anniversary and didn't even say anything? Yeah, but who decides the milestones? Do we just, like, do something every Well, like every five year years is a big one. 50 episodes or what? 250, I mean, like, okay, five years, that, that's a good milestone. You know, 100 episodes is a good milestone. I think 250 is a big one. The next one will, will be 500. But yeah, 250, that's, <clears throat> that's an important one, I think. All right, I'll plan a, a late montage for a 250. Oh, look at me giving you work. I like this. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, I'm sure everyone's completely enthralled in this conversation. I know. I know. <laughs> well, I have, I have some. Oh, I have, and, I have in fact, in fact, <laughs> let me use that as a segue because we have some long lost reviews. Do we really? Yeah. 
Oh, wow. And they go back to 2018 and 2017. Oh, my gosh. The only reason that they're long lost is because the, the review aggregator service that I use added another service to it called CastBox. And I guess it's a podcast player. And so there was actually three reviews sitting on that, on that service. And because they added it, it popped them up to me. Um, so I'll get to them. How about we got the oldest last? Uh, this one's in 2017, August of 2017, uh, from Michael Taylor. It says, relatable and honest guys, fun to listen to. And man, when they get start drinking, the, cor- <laughs> the cork pop sounds are unreal. If you, uh, if, you Salesforce, if you Salesforce, you should try it out. That's weird. I've never yeah. heard of Salesforce as a verb. Do you Salesforce? I, it- I think it's, you haven't? No. no. I think it's kind of funny. Um, I feel like we've read this one before, though. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it got posted to both or something. I don't know. Uh, Sounds familiar. This one was actually posted to an episode. This one's from another one. Uh, this one's from Mohammed Hamoud, I think is how you pronounce that. Uh, this was in October of 2018. So, uh, this is uh, in reference to the reference $69 for a gig. Uh, episode 191, he says the episode time is long. And the introductory conversation is long as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the common complaints is, what, are they, what is this show even about? These guys are just talking about a bunch of crap. Yep. And that's all you. No. <laughs> yep. Well, whatever. And the last one, this one is from Denson Berry, and this was from December of 2018. And he says, skip the Salesforce chat and just talk about brewing cider. And, and you get these guys that are that are happy for us to not talk about Salesforce for a while because they are they're wanting like a, a you know it's 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 interesting it's like you're having a conversation with someone who you have you know significant things in common with mm-hmm. Salesforce in this case but you don't want to just talk about Salesforce like you want to you want to talk about other things with this person that you know you have common interests with you know it's it so sometimes it's nice to well yeah that's that's always been the format right we're just two two friends two yeah. guys sitting talking shop you know. It's not like our lives revolve around Salesforce and we have to talk about Salesforce. Well, John, I, I do want to tell you a story that I thought was going to be very satisfying and only ended up being kind of satisfying, but I'm used to that. It's, it was still fun for me nonetheless. And it's kind of a nerdy story. Okay. So a couple of years ago um, at my old house, my internet provider uh, upgraded me to, I think I went from like two or 300 megabit service to uh, one gig service. And that was great, except I never really got anywhere close to that one gig. And I assumed it was because my cable modem, I guess, is what it needed to be upgraded. And I just never wanted to mess with it, so I didn't. Um, and then uh, fast forward a couple of years, we just moved to this new house a couple months ago. And we have uh, fiber, I guess, internet, and it's also one gig. And when they set us up with it, they, you know, they just gave us their kind of like, I, don't, I guess their, their router slash Wi-Fi access point. Mm-hmm. And with it, I was getting, you know, over Wi-Fi, I was getting, you know, 300 to 500 megabits, which is for Wi-Fi is pretty great. And I didn't even try to plug into it, but I assume I would have got, actually, I think I did because they made me test. Um, I was getting like, it was like right at 999 or something like that. But over Wi-Fi, I was getting, you know, a solid 300 to 500 megabits, which is, which is pretty good for Wi-Fi. Um, but it, it weirdly, because so the, the internet would always, you know, the speed test, it was good. Uh, ping test, it was good. But actual usage, like when you're just, you know, like doing a thing that people do when they sit around on the internet, like Google things, you know, Facebook, whatever, you know, Instagram, whatever. It was just, there was these constant intermittent like delays and just slow and Everyone, my family's been complaining, complaining, complaining for a couple of months. And I've kind of been uh, just dealing with it, but I was kind of tired of them complaining. So pulled out the old router that I hadn't used since the old house. It's like an Asus something. And I had, you know, this, the tomato firmware, you know, like the open source firmware that had used forever. It's great. It's just like full of functionality. It's got all this cool networking stuff and whatever. You can tweak the hell out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So that was still on there. So I plug it in. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to solve all the problems. Well, it did solve the problem of just the general usage of the internet sucked. Like it, all those little delays and whatever, it, it was fine. And now like normal, just hanging around web usage and stuff, it was great. It works fine. But when I go to run a speed test, the most I can get is like 80, 90 megabits, which was like the old house. And I'm like to the old house. I'm like, well, what is wrong? I mean, is there something wrong with this router? My, you know, my Wi-Fi router that I plugged in? Mm-hmm. 
And so I go back there and I'm looking at, you know, because I've, I've got I've got a cable, uh, an Ethernet cable coming out of the, the AT&T's box and it's going into my router. And then, I'm sorry, it's going into a switch. And from that switch, I've got things going to the access point and to like uh, a Mac mini and a, the Synology and all these things. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is so this is gigabit Ethernet. But are these super old cables? Are they not even gig? Are they not even like gigabit Ethernet compliant? I look at them. Sure enough, they're Cat five, and a gigabit Ethernet requires Cat five E at least. You know, Cat five E or Cat six. I guess I think mm-hmm. Cat five E is much more common though. I was like, that's it. That's my problem. So I get on Amazon. I order some, you know, Cat five E patch cables. They come a couple of days later. I, I replace all the, you know, the the Cat five with the Cat five E cables, and then I go do my speed test. I'm like, here we go. I'm gonna get like at least like 500 megabits over over Wi-Fi. Nope, still getting like 80, 90 megabits. I'm like, uh, I was hoping. I was like, I'm gonna go buy some cables. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it turns out on really short runs, which these were, they were like three feet cables. You can, I think you can probably push almost a gigabit over Ethernet, even on Cat five cables. I think the longer the cables get, the more you really need Cat five E though. So that wasn't the problem. Um, and then I really got down to it. I'm like, well, maybe it's this third-party firmware, which is super popular. I mean, to, the tomato firmware, it's crazy popular. People use it on all kinds of routers. And so I'm looking at the, I thought, well, let me, I did, I was doing some speed tests, just maxing this router out. And I'm looking at the CPU load. It was going over 1.5, which anything over one means you're, you're kind of saturated. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe this firmware is just really inefficient on this router or the router just does not have the CPU to drive this firmware. So I just installed the stock Asus firmware back on this router and boom, super fast. <laughs> Maybe it's got some optimizations for some hardware that's in there or something that it does. It does. Yeah, exactly. And I was reading that the tomato firmware just doesn't have the, it doesn't do hardware acceleration, or at least on mine, it couldn't. Whereas the stock firmware from Asus that they provide, you know, it does do hardware acceleration and yeah, it's like crazy fast now. You see what you did trying to be all nerdy. I know. I know. Thinking, thinking I nerded it up, John. Better. This is this, and this is something like you know when when I hire uh, people, I'm I'm always skeptical of people who will nerd it up. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I I love getting nerdy on things, and and I mean for like a lot of the town of work we do, it is nerdy, and like you you have to, you know, you need to be good at all the details and um and all the tricks and things, you know. Um, but some people will what I do, what I call they nerd it up, they nerd it up too much, and they get so stuck in their own nerdery or doing something the most ridiculously you know complicated nerdy way exactly a complicated way and it's not it's not the problem is not valuable it's it's anti-value and and some people just can't get over that and they don't make good they don't make good workers i think i think we all do that to a certain extent i mean you hear the saying that a that a what a doctor prescribes and a surgeon cuts to solve problems yeah um i think we do that too i mean we're coders and we like to code our way out of a problem and uh I know I tend to overcomplicate things. That's why I have this process that when given the time, I will go back and look at my code again because I know I've overcomplicated or maybe I haven't complicated enough. I don't know. There there are things where it's a balance of reuse, a balance of simplification, a balance of, you know, just kind of reducing the amount of clutter that's in your environment that sometimes it just takes multiple passes to kind of clean it up and figure out what the right path is. And even then it might not be the right path, which Kind of seems like it might be a waste, but it isn't. It's just something you got to live with and do. Yep. <clears throat> Another thing that surprised me was I got on when I was on Amazon. I went and looked at when I bought this router. I, I would have guessed I bought it like four years ago. No, it was 2013, so seven years ago. <laughs> it's pretty old. I need to, I definitely need to, I've been, you know, the thing is there are so many different routers now. Like if you just want like a typical, like an access point or a router with access point. I mean, there's, it's like, do I need, is tri-band or do I, is, is dual band good enough? Do I need tri-band? Like, it, am I going to even use that? Like, there's just all these things. Do I need this like M-U, M-I-M-O? Like, I mean, what all do I need? You know, and, and then, and then you, you get can one that you, you can need. put third-party firmware on or do you just, do you just find one that like, you're going to stick with the, the firmware provided by the manufacturer and just, you know, make sure you get one that their firmware has all the features you need. And I don't, I really don't know anything that crazy. I, I do like some of the stuff that's available on, on some of these third, like the tomato and like, what's the other one? DDWRT uh, uh, is one. And then there's one called Merlin. Um, or, or do I do something like, you know, I've been looking at Synology actually has a, has a 
a nice router. My only problem with it, it's actually old. It's, it's, it's really long in the tooth and I don't want to buy like an old model of this router because as soon as I do, they're going to come out with a new, <laughs> the new one. But, um, you know, you can't even get, no one makes, no one has like open source firmware for it. But one thing they're, that one thing they're known for is their, their, the firmware they provide is really good. It's like got, you know, tons of options and features and, you know, it's got all the port forwarding and, um, all that kind of crap you need. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I was going to tongue in cheek and say that what you need is to live out in the middle of nowhere with a direct pipeline to your ISP and and no con, no uh, wireless congestion because I think that's a lot of it. Walls, walls are an issue, and uh, just congestion of the spectrum is is an issue. I've even noticed that uh, windows are a big issue, and I'm surprised about that because, like, uh, when I was sitting on my my patio in the back and pretty much the only thing between, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe 20 feet from my router. So I'm not far from it. But the only thing between me and a router is one indoor, you know, typical thin, um, sheetrock wall, like drywall. Right. And then one, and one window. And just being on the other side of that window dramatically reduces the reception. Yeah. It's still an obstacle, right? Just because we can see it, it, it. It's, is. Not like it's, it's not like Wi-Fi is transmitted by light, so it it, it makes sense that a window would no. would still. No, my my logic, if I can see through it, it should be able to get through it. That's my logic. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that works. I mean, sound okay. can travel, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a wave. Anyway, I have I have another uh, nerdy story. All right. If you want to keep on the nerdy story track, might as well get them all over with. <laughs> okay, so I was I was trying to watch this TV show, and there's one episode I couldn't get. Uh, wasn't available on like any of my services. And I think I had I'm trying to think if it was, it was, it was a show that I'd already captured at some point. Anyway, I had, I was missing one episode and I couldn't, I, you know, I was like, well, I don't know where to go get it. So I've searched, I was like, I'll see if BitTorrent has it. So search BitTorrent. Sure enough, it's there. But then I realized that I, I haven't, I haven't torrented anything for so long. Like I used to use this thing called uh, an app called views, but apparently it's just out of commission or whatever. And also, you know, if you're going to do BitTorrent, you really have to um, either use like a Sox proxy or even better, like do it through a VPN. Mm-hmm. If not, you know, you get, you'll get uh, complaints mm-hmm. from your ISP. And so I thought, well, okay, I could, I mean, I have a VPN. I could just like, I don't know, flip the VPN on, on my computer from home here. And, but then I'm like, I don't want, I don't want like all of my track, all my internet traffic, just by browsing anything else, like having to go through a VPN. I only want just the BitTorrent traffic to go through that. And I don't really know a way to do that. My BitTorrent cli- or my VPN client doesn't seem to have a way f- to do that. And I don't know. So anyway, that turns out the for, you know, the easiest way to do this is, you know, there are these various um, Docker images that people make available. And I use this one. It's, um, I found that, and it's, it's like maintained. I'm going to try to find it now. Uh, but anyway, it's, um, it's uh, there's so one of the popular, really popular uh, BitTorrent clients is called Qubit, Qubit Torrent, I guess. And some guy's got a Docker image he maintains, and it's Qubit Torrent running, you know, running on Linux, and with an op- open VPN client. And so, just like with one command line, you know, I, I fired up this container, passed in my VPN information, and then I just open up a browser and just got a localhost eighty eighty, and there's Qubit Torrent. <laughs> Hmm. And it's running, it's running, uh, that, that container is running with VPN enabled. Like it, it's the VPN's running, the VPN client is in the container. So my, the rest of my computer is not going through that VPN, just that container. Well, no wonder your fans are going all the time. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> all those dockers. Trying to figure out, I just want to give credit. Oh, Mark, Marcus Mc, McNugan. I guess. I don't know. I'll put a I'll put a link to it in show notes. So another uh another win for Docker lightweight containers, John. You can't do that with uh without containers. Nope, sure can't. You could with another computer though. Yep. Well that's kind of what a <laughs> container is, isn't it? I don't know, is it? I mean it's a virtual, I guess. Yeah. Well and it and on a Mac. I'm just running this on a Mac and I think I think Docker runs Docker runs 
uh, everything in. It does have one VM actually that it runs all your containers in. Whereas if you're on Linux, you don't you don't even have to have a VM. You can just run directly on your Linux OS. Hmm. Yep. Anyway, well, I had a question for you, and it's okay. a it's a bit of an open ended question, so it, it it is what it is. Um, but uh, how do you go about approaching onboarding or handing off code? I, I've I've uh, been in a situation where I have to kind of do such task and. <laughs> Uh, it's tough. I, I, it's tough to know where to start. I mean, do you start with an overview of everything? And it, from a developer, from a UI perspective, it's easy. You walk through the application, you walk through the point and clicky stuff, and you talk about what it does and how it helps users and all that kind of stuff. But then you get to the code, and you're like, well, where do I start? Do I start with the data model? Do I start with the code structure? Do I start to talk about how we build things? Do I talk about how we um, manage things through the process? Like, you know, do we have a Kanban or something? You know, I don't know. What? What? How would you start? I mean, are you try, just trying to hand off code, or are you handing off like a whole process and, and Let's an just environment? Say, and, yeah, and, I think onboarding or, or handing off would just be the whole process. Like you're in charge of saying, "Here's where we're at, and here's where you need to pick it up." So, as a as a developer, what I would if if you were handing off to me, what I want is first of all, I want a well structured, you know, code base. So oh, you're you're not getting that I'm, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, it, and at least what I want is I, when I, you know, do get pull on this and I'm looking in the, in the root of the source, I want to see either, a, a, you know, like a, a palm.xml or a, um, what's, um, if, it's, if it's a JavaScript project or something, I would expect to see, um, you know, package.json, somewhere where I can, you know, in, or like a, um, like a build, some kind of build file or, in, you know, index file of some sort into the project where I can start discovering because I, I think most you know, a, a good experienced developer is just going to want to be able to, it, it, again, it should be, and, and again, you know, any project should be, there should be a, a one-step build. So it's, you know, it's NPM or it's Maven or it's Gradle or whatever, you know, and you should be able to build the whole thing in one step with one command. Um, because if you can do that, then I can also, as a developer, I can open up that same build file and, and start essentially indexing the project myself. So I can see, okay, I can see the entry point of this into this JavaScript application is an index.ts. It's TypeScript or something. And then I go, I go, what am I going to do? I'm going to go pop open that index.ts and I'm going to look at the things it's importing, the frameworks, um, the you know, custom components and all these things. Like, and then I can, again, if it's structured well, you know, I'm probably going to have like either top level folders for like, you know, the different um, modules of the project, or maybe it's separated by like views and controllers and things, you know. But yeah, I mean, and I it should be a- self-evident. And and on top of that, a README is great. I think, a, you know, because there's a README is good for things that, I mean, I guess it's like a README should start out with, you know, hey, this, here's what this project is. Here's how you build it. And then it should go into the things that aren't immediately available by looking at a build file. Um, mm-hmm. You know, any, any other kind of information that's not like quickly discoverable. Yeah, and I think... I- Oh, I just kicked my mic. Sorry. I think there's a couple of things with that. One is is that you're a much more experienced developer, and you took that question from your perspective coming into a project. But I want to yep. flip it and say, okay, you're the experienced developer, and you have someone coming on who may or may not be as experienced as you. You don't know because you haven't worked with them before. How would you start to socialize? Oh, socialize. I use that word. The, app- yeah. <laughs> the application architecture or the code base and all that kind of stuff to them. Like, where would you start? Well, okay. I, the the only way I think this actually works well is to number one, my baseline requirement of what I already said. But then the second thing is, I would just I would then I think the best thing to do is start giving people uh, issues or bugs to fix or something because that is by far the best way to get actual practical knowledge and experience with the code base. Everything else is just theoretical. You can sit up there and give me PowerPoint presentations and walk me through the code all day, and it just isn't all that meaningful. Yeah, I think that's... And, and I know management wants to think it is, and like people, you know, they want to see, you know, do, they want to see you write documents about the code, mm-hmm. and like, you know, and they want to see, you know, code comments all over the place, and they want to see unnecessary and annoying and the bad kind of comments, the kind of comments that 
are should be unnecessary. The code should <laughs> the code should clearly say what those comments are saying, and then if they do, then you, you of course you have that's that's duplication in and of itself, and it's you know bad comments, right? Um, so right. typical typical old school management. One sec, all the kind of crap that doesn't work. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think handing off or assigning bug issue or issues are is a, is a key thing. I could tell you from personal experience that that's how I gained the most experience with a, with a code base that I knew nothing about was just trying to dig in, click the button and then have to walk and trace it all the way back through the code to figure out what was happening when it, when it initiated and what happened when it was, when it was posting back. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I guess in general, I think onboarding and handing off code is, is a tough thing to do. Uh, it's worse if the people who are closest to it are not going to be there anymore and you have to pick it up blindly. But I think tackling issues is a good place to start. I'm not a fan of documentation, although it is kind of nice to be able to reference requirements so that you can at least understand what the original intent was, because uh, sometimes that just doesn't get translated well in the code. Or if it does, it's tough to pick up on. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Uh, what about tests? Um, do, you, yeah. do you rely on tests to, to kind of inform you a little bit on how things are intended to be uh, structured or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, if there are good tests, I mean, that's what they do. I mean, and you can look at a test and and see how, you know, whatever's being tested, the system or a class or whatever, how it is intended to be exercised. And the, and then you know, again, if the tests are named well, you know, the the tests tell you what, you know, the system does and how it, how it should behave. You know, I guess that comes back to how you test things. So I think you go for more functional style testing. Is that right? Is that what you'd call depends it? on totally depends on what I'm building and what pl- the platform is and what it's good at and what it's not good at. I'm still very much uh, uh, don't don't shoot me for using this verbiage, but I, I still stick to more unit test style testing, meaning that I take a method and I test it and I give it different scenarios, positive and negative, where possible, um, to try to test it out. Sometimes, sometimes though, that that's an expensive endeavor to say that I'm going to test this method or this function to the nth degree. Um, all these different scenarios. So I think there's a bit of a balance give and take there though. Yeah. I mean, unit tests are still really controversial. I mean, on the one, on the one, it's like politics nowadays, you know, you're a horrible person if you don't do it my way. On the one hand, you got all these, you know, uh, uncle Bob types, you know, the software craftsman or whatever. And they're like, you know, if you're not doing test first development on everything, TDD, then you're a horrible, horrible, horrible person. And on the other hand, you got people like, I don't know, let's, uh, how about Marco Arment who, kind of a famous indie software developer who makes, you know, arguably pretty good software. And he doesn't do unit tests at all. This is a complete waste of his time. And it works really well for him. He, he is, you know, it's for an indie software developer, incredibly successful, probably makes a lot of money on his apps. And this doesn't do unit tests. So, you know, who's to say, I mean, again, on, on when you're, uh, if you work for a company or, you know, you're getting paid to, to build software or getting paid by someone else, then, you know, you need to, you need to figure out, you know, what, what are the expectations? What's this kind of the standard of quality or whatever that people are going to expect? Um, and also, you know, what do you think is, what do you think is the best way for you to build something? If you think, you know, that you need um, a certain kind of tests in order to do a good job, then, you know, do those tests. That's why, you know, I think you were alluding to like on set with Salesforce work, I don't do near as much unit testing as what I would call like functional or end to end testing. Yeah, I probably rely more heavily on the unit testing side than I do the the functional side. Well, you uh, say that, but I bet if I looked at most of your unit tests, I would not consider them to be unit tests. Mm. Because it's firing up the database, it's accessing the database. Not um, well, you, you might know, be surprised. Um Sure, there's a lot of that, but a lot of times the way I structure my logic is I'll encapsulate it in a class, and for for better or for worse, good or bad, I will sometimes abstract away a lot of the the key uh, properties of an object into the class as a class-level property, because then I can test that class's functionality without having to incur the expense of standing up an S object and running that trigger and getting it to fire. Well, in this case, a trigger running that trigger and getting it to fire. I can test the logic and go, okay, as long as I, you know, as long as whatever I use to wire this up to the trigger, everything should be fine because the logic works given these parameters. So, yeah. And that, that, that's good. And I think on, you know, um, where you have the need to like just test pure kind of code functionality. I mean, 
I think unit tests can make a lot of sense. It's just that, you know, in the Salesforce world, you're 99% of the time, you're just, you're creating transactional functionality and you're going to have to have a test on that trigger anyway. And you need to test that it does what it's supposed to do, or you're going to need to test that apex controller or whatever else it is. And then, you know, <laughs> and you, there are no namespaces, so you don't want to have a million classes. And that's what we mentioned last week. Like, you know, do you code uh, interfaces instead of implementations, all those things? And I'm like, well, good luck with Salesforce because you're going to have all these, you're going to have so many additional, uh, you know, apex files. Yeah, for all these interfaces and different implementations of them and everything, um, and it's it just becomes a mess really fast. And so there's a huge cost to it that I don't I don't think is worth it. I'd rather just do. I mean, I'm getting again. I'm 99 percent of the time I'm creating, you know, transactional code, and it needs it needs the database, and it's going to have a database, and I'm why you know it. I've I've got to cover all that anyway. What on what additional help is as a unit test actual real unit tests all that same code what is that going to do and, and the answer i think i mean if sometimes the answer is it actually is useful um it just it totally again it just it depends i mean if you've got code that's you know got all kinds of logic that has nothing to do with databases or s objects or fields or everything then unit tests make a lot more sense for those things I think a combination of both can be valuable but it gets expensive uh, just from the time and effort put into it because i think you can you can unit test all your basic functionality, all your core functionality, and then have a more functional style test that just executes something and validates the output. Um, but I mean that that's that's a lot of work. Yep. Especially if you're talking about a method that does something very simple, you're still talking about what an, an nth degree of complication just to test it with all the different scenarios. Yeah, and and you may, may like you know may very well end up with more test code than you have production code, and and then the question is like you know is is your employer like, are they happy with you spending half of your time or more writing tests instead of actual functionality, right? And then you know you have to figure out like do they understand the value of that? Maybe that does make sense. I mean I've got plenty of projects where I end up with more test code than I do regular you know production code and. That's totally fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever because on any, you know, any, on, on any project of any significant size, I mean, that the, you, the reason you do those tests is so that you don't get bogged down halfway through the project with so much, you know, crappy code and lack of test coverage that you can't, you can't make a change with because no, no one has confidence to add any new functionality or make any change because they don't know what they're going to break. Right. I know that's a... a a fairly familiar scenario to, to you, John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about you know the the onboarding or the handoff of code, and you mentioned you know being able to look at build scripts and all that kind of stuff. But in the Salesforce world, we really don't have that. I think the closest thing we have to what the application should be doing in terms of requirements or anything like that is the tests. And a lot of times, if that's all you have is tests, the document what the system should do that that's not bad actually that's pretty good i mean i'd well, much rather have that than some some big what are the, what are these things called um an frd and a brd and srs, SRS i mean and- th- those are all garbage <laughs> those are total garbage cuz tests tests don't lie right documents do lie right yeah and to me that just kind of screams the importance of testing but in every environment i've come across, not every but in a lot of the environments including the one i'm in currently testing was just not the forefront and the test did not help me at all in trying to understand things. There, there, there are a few situations, I won't say at all, there are a few situations where it did kind of help my understanding of things, and I was thankful for that, but a lot of times the tests were, were horrible. They were just there for code coverage, and that was it. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, and unfortunately, I mean, you know, if, you know, if, you're not, if you don't manage a project well, you end up with a, a pretty crappy code base, and that's not just the code, but the test, too. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I see. I see a lot more of this than I wish I did. Unfortunately, yeah, I'm a little surprised by the the ecosystem in general. I mean, I I don't consider myself to be a very good developer, and I I, I kind of feel like I'm a very amateurish developer. I mean, I didn't I didn't want to say anything, but <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. I I really truly mean that. I don't. But I come across developers all the time, almost casually that that don't seem to understand some of these concepts or grasp some of these concepts and. I don't. I don't look bad at that. I don't. Oh, I'm starting to sound elitist here. It's not. I, 
I just don't understand how they can get to a level in their career and not worry about these things, not care about these things, in my opinion. And, and again, in my opinion. Uh, I, so I, it, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder that too sometimes. And, and uh, again, we're, we're all at a, at a certain path in our career, you know, and, and I, I mean, even I look back at the things I've learned in the last six months and I, I would look back, I would look down on my six months ago self, you know? Yeah, exactly. As, as, oh, that, that guy doesn't really know what he's doing, you know, or why would he do that? It's crazy. You know, and that's just, I mean, I think that's, um, it's just perspective bias in a way, but um, you know, if you don't, some people, I just, they're just talented. They're, they're born with, they think like an engineer and that really helps. I, I don't really, I don't feel like I really fit into that category. And if you don't, then your next best hope is to work with people who are really good engineers and learn from them. They will, you know, just if you are on a team with them and if you pair with them, that can, you'll just, you'll learn, you'll learn, you know, how to do things or, or better ways to do things. Um, I didn't really have that either. So I fall into the third category, which is I started learning. I started becoming, because it's like, it's definitely a, you don't know what you don't know. Like I didn't know about like all these software design principles and, and engineering techniques and things. I just, I wasn't aware. But as I started to become aware that, oh my gosh, there's like this whole world that I am so behind on. I just started um, going to either conferences and or um, finding out like which books I needed to read to just to get better in all these areas. And so I'm largely self-taught. Of course, nowadays, like with the internet, right? And um, there's so many opportunities to like get help and to also, um, there's so much, you know, think about with GitHub. I mean, you can just, you can learn how to code things well just by looking at well done projects and contributing to those projects. Yeah, I'd say I'd fall into the third category as well. I'm self-taught, but I don't, I don't think I had, I, I had mentors along the line, but I don't know that aside from yourself, I don't know that anybody's really taught me the things that I didn't know. You know, they, they, they gave me the, the allowance to learn as I, on the job and do things and experience things and experiment with things, but I didn't have anyone challenging me and saying, Hey, what about this? Or what about that? Or, or why did you do this? You know, it was, it was mostly if it worked great, move on. Um, it wasn't until probably later when I started really wanting to hone the craft out of, out of my own, what's the word? Uh, inadequacies or <laughs> ill confidence and lack of confidence that I really started trying to study more of these design patterns and principles. Um, but even at that, even before that, I really cared about how my code looked. I really wanted it to be able to, to be, be able to read it, not only for myself, but just in general, I didn't want anybody else to look at the code and go, what the hell? I, w- I will say you've always been like, I mean, even, even your 20 year ago developer who probably sucked, um, your code, you've always been really good at form, like having good looking code. Oh, you have no yeah. idea how much I obsess of it. I will pick <laughs> variable names so that they match. So they'll be in line. Like when I declare variables, I'll be like, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a synonym to a word that matches lengthwise just so I get a proper line on the columns. I'm just really do, weird do, about that. Your method names, like if you read them, you know, one after another, do they have to like form a, a haiku or some kind of no, iteration? No, fortunately, method names, I don't go that crazy <laughs> with it. But if I'm going to stack uh, variables together or something, or I even group variables. So if a group of variables do, works in a certain region of the code, that'll be grouped and then I'll indent and I'll have an empty an empty line so I can show the next grouping of variables. I won't just have a, a f- just a ton of variables listed in a row without any purpose. Uh, like even constants, I'll... I'll define them and they'll be clearly defined and I'll, I'll have a breaking line in between them um, just to kind of group them just because for my own benefit, I feel like it's easier to read and I hope others find it easier to read. Yeah. Oh, the, I, th- I still think the biggest thing for readability is no, ver- no uh, horizontal scrolling. That's, that's my, oh, that's my biggest pet peeve. That was one I wasn't too, I, I was considerate of, but not to the degree that I am today. And even now it turns out I'm a liar. By the way, I don't know if we've addressed this in the last episode where I thought I was using 80 columns, but I apparently I'm using over 100 columns, maybe 120. Oh, yeah, it was. It, I think it was like 120. Like, yeah, I, I knew it. I knew it couldn't be 80. I'm just like, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Every time I look at 80, 80 column code, it, it just it's like, wow, this is you. It's, you can hardly fit two words on on the line. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I changed it a while ago and, and IntelliJ just kept track of it as I uninstalled and, and, and reinstalled it a few times, but uh, yeah, that's where it stayed. And that's why I, for the longest time I thought I was doing 80. 
<clears throat> it's fine. Yeah. My other problem with, with uh, that column is, <clears throat> sorry, I've been talking all day, um, is that IntelliJ, and I think this is an IntelliJ feature, is whenever you pass in a literal, I think, into a method argument, it, it expands it and shows you what the argument name is, which pushes your code out. You know, what I'm you know about? and you can, yeah, and I like that, but I also don't like it sometimes because I, I can't tell. But you know, you get a few of those on a line, and it pushes your line past. You know, how many? You know, let's say it's a hundred columns that you, um, and it pushes it past it. But then I can't tell. Well, is it past it because I've actually got more than hundred characters on that line, or is it because all of the those little helper labels are in line? I, it's right. hard to tell. I do, and so then I have to, then that. I have to move my cursor to the end of the line to see what the cursor what the you know what in the status bar what it's what when you know it'll tell you where you're at and that's a crappy way to check to see if your code looks good or not yeah and i also have that feature to collapse the uh i guess the operators so you can do a less than equal to and it'll collapse it down to one character the operators i think it's whatever you call it it's just what i said so if you do a not equal instead of seeing on the screen a uh a, a exclamation and an equal you would see uh yeah. An equal with a slash through it. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay, I don't do that. So that condenses it a little bit, but not much. But yeah. Well, anyways, I wanted to segue into the next topic. That's okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, this is something that I I saw in our Slack, and I wanted to to bring it up. Um, I also wanted to add on onto it, but uh, this was from Chuck Liddell, and he says, I'll, "I'll just read his paragraph, and then we'll respond to it." A little Friday noodling for that brain of yours. A few years ago, I read this article by John Carmack, that guy who wrote Doom about inline coding. As a traditional Java purist, I had been dogmatic about always separating out little single-task, well-named functions. This article made me see another way and helped slide me further on the scale towards pragmatic programming. In a nutshell, he's advocating for style C over style AB. The most coherent parts of the argument are towards the bottom of the linked article, so I try to get through the whole thing. If you want to uh, contemplate these patterns, I think he's referring to an article link. But yeah, I think you remember this and you said you want to respond to it, but essentially it's, it's the idea of, you know, do you have a single function with a ton of inline code or do you take that function and break it up into smaller chunks and then that main function is calling out to other functions? Mm, yeah. Okay, so, one, so there's a couple of arguments for having it all in one function. Um, one is, the, I guess, the performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, if you're writing really tight C code for, I don't know, like if you're writing an Adobe product or a game or something like that, then yeah, I mean fun, uh, function calls, you know, they, they do uh, incur, you know, a small amount of overhead, even with, you know, V tables and all that. And some, some people will say, you know, you shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have that. Um, and other people just, just um, have a problem. They just have some kind of ethical problem with a function that only has one call site. And I, I just don't, I don't, uh, uh, what's the word? Sympathize? No, I don't, I don't align myself with either of those concepts. Like, first of all, I don't care if a function only has one call site, as long as it has one. But if it, I don't care if it's just one. I mean, breaking up a big function into smaller functions, even, even if there's just only one call site, it still it can result in more readable and arguably, in a lot of cases, better code, more testable code. Right. More, a more comprehensible code. Um, and the other thing is, most of us nowadays are, are not writing bare metal code. We are writing code that's going through at least one layer, additional layer of virtual machines. And these modern virtual machines, whether it's .NET or Java or whatever, I mean, they're doing so much runtime um, optimization of, of hot code paths that you should not, tra- you know, that, that typical thing where, you, you know, you, again, and back, you know, it goes back to the C days or, or even the days, you know, in Java before, uh, before the runtime got really good at this kind of thing, you know, you, you, you cared about how many function calls you had or, you know, inlining, um, inlining things in, you know, inlining functions. That's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you can tell the compiler basically to compile it down to an inline function instead of a function call. And nowadays you don't, you just don't, you know, you don't do any of that. In fact, it's, it's a, it's an anti-pattern and, you know, you'll, you'll get pull requests rejected because it's much better to write, you know, well-structured, well-readable, well-testable code. And then a combination of the compiler and then the runtime will, it'll, if it needs to inline function calls, like if you have like a small function that's getting called a lot, 
it'll inline that at runtime automatically, which is amazing. You know, the, the, the technology we have, um, I mean, the, the Java virtual machine is a spectacular piece of uh, software engineering. And, and I'm sure .NET, uh, the .NET, what's it called? The CLR? I'm sure it is too. I mean, it, you know, I think they got most of those ideas from Java originally. Any, anyway, um, yeah. But it, you, you just, you don't, I mean, the, the more you try to write that kind of pre-optimized, you know, what's the saying? Uh, pre-optimization is the root of all evil. And the more you try to pre-optimize this thing, you really, you really, uh, what you're doing is you're confusing the compiler. Just write good code and the, comp- and the no, I say the compiler. I really mean the compiler and the runtime. It will, it will optimize for you. You generally, other than don't do dumb things like queries and loops, right? But, right. but other than that, I mean, it's going to, it's going to optimize uh, your code for you. And you just, it's not something you really need to, to mess with. And, and if I'm looking at the code, I'd rather see, uh, I'd rather see the three functions defined separately and, and called by the main function. And if that's if that's my choice versus these functions I've seen that are pages and pages and pages long that get indented to levels that are you can't even tell where you're at anymore, and you know the closing brackets has like thirty two <laughs> closing <laughs> curly braces, uh, no thanks, no thanks. Yeah, I think I think one thing I heard at some point in my career, and it might have been back in the VB days, was that stop thinking you're smarter than the compiler. Um, And I think maybe at some point, certain languages did require you to do things a certain way as an efficiency, like declare your variables a certain way so that, you know, it makes memory blocking easier. But I I think as compilers got better and and all those kind of things, you kind of had to not worry about that stuff and you just let the compiler do what it did best. Yeah, I think, um, again, for most of these platforms, we we long time ago passed the tipping point at which you just should stop trying to optimize that and let, and just write good code and let the compiler do it. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting topic because I had actually been um, watching this series and it's an older series, I think, and they might have some newer episodes, but I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen this series on YouTube to go and watch it. Uh, It's from Ars Technica and uh, they have a, it's called war stories and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But they basically do interviews with these uh, game developers. Most of them are the older game developers, things like uh, Prince of Persia or, or um, some of the o- online um, RPG games and things like that, or MRPG games. And it, they, they talk, it's not, they're not like lengthy, and they don't get into a lot of you know, full-length technical, this is how we built it and this is how we coded it type thing. They're like maybe 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes long. And... Uh, they really talk about the thought process, the challenges they've had on the plat- different platforms that they were developing on, you know, like memory limitations and file size and distribution um, and all the different things that they had to, to, to overcome to accomplish whatever they did. Um, and I thought it was fascinating just to see and then hear them talk about how they problem solved, getting past some of the limitations of the system, even to points where they were finding hidden, hidden, hidden bits of memory somewhere on the hardware that they could leverage to just add another character on the screen and things like that. Or even in some higher level cases where they implemented some system in the game, thinking that it would solve a certain problem, it gets out to the real world and users just blew over that process or that system and they had to completely scrap it and start something new. So I, I just thought it was a fascinating thing. And I think it gets into some of the conversation around this, you know, inlining functions, having function calls, trying to make the most out of the, the resources that you have available to you on a given platform. Yeah, that, <clears throat> that is that is fun. Um, I've heard stories about like you know the I don't know these different game platforms where they just they're squeezing every little bit of performance. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll find some hidden register in the, in the in the processor that they can you know they can yeah. use to hold stuff in. Uh, yeah, I've never really I don't know, that's 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 always fascinating to me, but I've never done that kind of coding, so I can only I can only sit back and what are you talking about stories? You work on a system um, right now that's full of limitations. Well, that's, <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's a little bit easier now, but remember when you had to count the number of lines of code you were executing before you hit your limit? No, there was a number of lines? Or so like, you can only, I guess you number can only of, execute oh, so it, many lines of code before they switched just, to the CPU limit. Yeah, that's true. I, don't, I never counted lines, though. No, I'm just saying, but you, yeah, you wouldn't sit there and actually count lines of code, but it was something you had to worry about. You had to make things yeah, as efficient no, as possible. True. Instead of doing a loop, you might leverage the in. Like one of my tips on my blog from way back when was if you're going to create a map of an S object, use the the magic uh, constructor for the map to pass in your your S object so that it would create the map for you. So the ID object mm-hmm. instead of looping through and creating it, 
because yep. that's a, that's one line that gets counted as one line. But if you do the loop yep. yourself and create it, then that's one, two, three lines or whatever. Yeah, for every for each record too, right? Yeah, yeah, because it counts the it's it's not it's not counting the number of lines, it's counting the number of executions right. of lines. Right. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. So you, we we do it every day in, in Salesforce world, and it, I think it just goes to illustrate that you know at some point in time. Every system, every platform, whatever it is we're working on, whether it's a platform or hardware, or a platform or software, or cloud, whatever, there's limitations. And sometimes those limitations yeah. are can inspire you because they they challenge you to do things a certain way or to come up with a new creative way of, of accomplishing something. Right. And I always like to say, you know, if this stuff were easy, then uh, probably no one would want to pay me to do it. That's so. true. <laughs> Keep those limits in force, Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a couple of uh, little, I guess they're kind of like follow-up almost, but um, and this, and this is not new, but I just ran across it came in my feed. It was, uh, it's from the register, which is a, a funny kind of mix of it news and British humor. But they, uh, they talked about, you know, you mentioned Benny, I've got some, you know, two or $3 million. I guess it's like a performance bonus. They, they hit some number or something that they, they define themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, they hit it. So they, you know, the, the, the top brass got a bonus and, you know, Mark's was like 2.3 million, but, uh, the register puts in perspective. So they say that Benioff's net worth is thought to be around $6.5 billion, depending on the day share price. And if you look at the median U S family net worth, uh, this, you know, that puts Benioff's annual bonus is proportional to the same as about a $34 bonus for the average American family. So three point two million dollars to you to Benny. Uh, sorry, two point three billion dollars to Benny off is probably like thirty four dollars to you. So that's what I. That's why that's my comment. I was like, I'm like, okay, that's that's such a small amount. I know it sounds like a lot to us, but to him, that's that's just you know you could probably find that in your uh, couch cushions. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to to infer from that. Am I supposed to feel bad for Benny off because he only got thirty four dollars? Uh, that was not the point <laughs> of the story. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't feel bad for you, Benioff. <laughs> and then I see my other piece of follow-up is this. Um, this is this is useless um, for us, but I just thought it was funny. Salesforce's CMO club. I mean, you know how they bought a CMO club? Yeah. We still have We still and we haven't figured that out yet, right? No one has told us what the hell that's all about. Eyeballs. I don't know. Marketing people. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just still weird. Uh, anyway, um, they have extended. Let's see. The Salesforce-owned CMO Club has announced a six-month extension on their membership. So all of our uh, all of our listeners who who are members of the CMO Club, uh, good news for you! You're getting a, a six-month extension on your membership. <laughs> nice. Uh, it just cracks me up. Anyway, and I have a final uh, just news announcement. So again, back to engineering for those of you who uh, who like to build uh, web apps or big apps or high-scale apps. Uh, Google has released their latest. It's like a new edition, I guess, of their SRE book, the Site Site Reliability Engineering. Hmm. If so, if you have a, a spare, you know, two weeks to read a thousand-page book, uh, it's actually um, I've, I've not read the entire uh, previous edition, but uh, you know, I've, I've I've gone through certain sections. It's really really interesting if you want to know how Google builds, you know, sites for and applications for high scale then. And if you know, it's it's almost like the the twelfth or twelve factor app concepts, but just on even on more steroids, if that's possible. It does sound like it would be interesting, but it also sounds like it would be dangerous. Like you'll start seeing everything from that lens. Like, oh, and I got to build it this way because that's the way Google yeah. builds it. I'm gonna build yeah. my little my little blog <laughs> right. website like Google builds there. Yeah. Did you did you put sites. an army of an army of reverse proxies in front of your blog, John? <laughs> no, I need to no. enable that clustering and regional <laughs> yeah. access and right. everything. Yep. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you, you know, put up Kubernetes for your, uh, for your kids, you know, science project site, <laughs> Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. The only, the only other thing that I had on my list here was, um, as I was doing, uh, my router stuff and I, I was doing some, I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and set up some more kind of, I had not done anything other than default setup on like our home network here. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was doing some, some kind of basic, I uh, like subnetting. So I created a, f- a few different networks and so I wanted to do just a little bit of quiz for you, um, on, uh, some, some, I, some subnetting. And then also, uh, I think that these are things we talked about, but there's a cup, there's some of these old, it just, I started getting nostalgic 
for the old, good old uh, days of the internet before the web. So I got, got a couple couple questions God, for you here, Don. These are for me because right. I'm going to fail. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I never was never that guy. I barely passed my Net Plus certification. <laughs> oh, if you pass Net Plus, then you should you should know these. No, I forgot it all. I'm serious. Mm. Okay. Th- th- these are easy though. So if I have a class C uh, network and I subnet it into four subnets, how many host IPs are available per subnet? 255, right? Well, so 255 is, that's the, I mean, that's, that's the, um, that's a class C, right? If you have the, you know, if you have a, um, you know, if your subnet mask is 255.255.255.0, that's a class C network. Yeah. So my question is, if you, if you subnet that into four subnets, how many host IPs are available per subnet? One. Don't they all have to go through the, the host subnet? No, no. It's a, it's how many, basically, how many usable IP addresses do I have per subnet? I don't know. 255 times four. <laughs> It'd be, wouldn't it be 255 divided by four? I'm trying to help you out here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're divided right. By, Sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> do the math. That's actually 256 because it's 0, 3. So it's 256. Yeah. But that's actually, that's close. I'll give you partial credit. The actual answer is not 64. It's 62 because, again, the question is how many host IPs, usable host IPs are available. But you got to take one out. So the first, um, the first address in the range. So, in, in like for the first subnet that starts at dot zero, right? So dot zero is actually the network address. And then the last address, which would be dot sixty three, uh, is for is the broadcast address. So you always lose, you know, two IPs per subnet to because you always have to have a network address and a broadcast address. Jeez, all you're doing is highlighting um, how much I forgot. <laughs> so. <laughs> So here's a here's a bonus question though. What of these four subnets? What would the what would the network IPs be for them? So those four subnets, each of them has a a network address. What would the network addresses be? You can just give the last number, the last octet. Uh, I don't know. No. So the first one would be point would be zero. So yeah, you know one ninety two dot one sixty eight dot one dot zero. Yeah. And the second subnet would be 64. Third would be 128. And the last one would be 192. Yeah, I would have, uh, yeah, yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you kind of got the first answer. So, so here, here's a perfect a example bit. of why certifications aren't all that great. Because I got a Net Plus certification, but never used any of it. And this was, what, eight, ten years ago when I got that certification? Never used it. Never. In fact, I didn't even have a reason to get it. I just happened to go and take it because my brother was taking it and I could get half off on the course. So I took Mm it. I mean, well, you you do like the concepts. Yeah, I picked up a few things. But again, because I wasn't in practice and I have so many many other things going on in my brain, it all goes out the window. And until I, there are times where I have to manage my own home network and I'm trying to set some of this stuff up and I'm Googling like crazy, just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Okay, what's the difference between a collision domain and a broadcast domain? Oh, I have no idea. And I, I probably should Google the answer to this, but because I don't know a great way to describe it. But a, so collision domains are are layer one. So like uh, with Ethernet, right? You know the way. So what is what is a carrier CDMA, right? Carrier detect multiple access or something like that. CSMA, can't remember. But basically, the way Ethernet works is it. Kind of just like sends a message out, but it it knows, it, you know, if if another uh, host on the network sends a message out, you know, at the same time, they detect mm-hmm. that, and then they both kind of stop and retract their message, their frame, and they um, they pause for a random amount of time, and then they try again, and so that that's why you know that's why it's a collision domain because they can totally collide, and and then. You know, in typical networks, like on Ethernet, you know, any like if you have a hub, not a switch, but a hub, mm-hmm. like everything plugged into that hub is on the same uh, collision domain because they share, they're sharing the same physical line and signal. Whereas a broadcast domain happens, it's, I think it's more of a layer two, um, which is why, a, why like switches break up uh, collision domains. So like each port on a switch is a separate collision domain, but uh, it's the same, they're on the same broadcast domain. So the switch will... Uh, send broadcast packets across its ports. Yeah, that's making sense. I'm learning stuff. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm now here's failing, some old I'm failing the stuff. quiz, but I'm learning stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's important. That's all that matters. Um, <laughs> okay. Here's uh, and we've talked about this stuff before, but I I think people should know these. Um, these were these were fun. This is before the web. Um, 
I don't know if, you know, people our age, um, I mean, I got into the internet in the early, it'd be early nineties, I guess. And I think web became a thing and like at least something that became interesting. And I know HTTP was probably invented like early nineties, but it wasn't really interesting to like, I want to say 94, 95 is when, you know, that there started being, becoming enough websites that. That know, sounds about there right. There's actually something to do. I mean, before that, you know, you had FTP and, uh, you had Telnet and, you know, it was not a whole hell of a lot. Of it, but um, one of the earlier services that predates uh, HTTP was called Gopher. John, can you tell me what Gopher was? Oh, I should know this. <laughs> I feel like I do know this. See, I don't know because I just don't know that you, I don't know that you were, did you have like, um, did you, back in the day, did you get a, like a, a slip or a PPP account into the internet where you just, you know, you can, you dial up and you connect in and you're just literally there to telnet. You're, you're in a shell. It's, you know, we call it a shell account, I guess. No, but I've heard that before and I don't know where I picked it up from, but it sounds familiar, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say, no, I don't know what that is. So Gopher was like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this, it was a menu based system, but it was a way to find and, and retrieve and I guess you could upload, I'm not even sure, documents. So, you know, HTTP is a, it's a document-based system, but this is before that. And, you know, there was a, there was like a menu system. Okay, I was thinking you of could use kind of to, peer-to-peer thing. No, no, it was like a menu system that you could use to kind of navigate and find documents. Um, related to that was a service called Veronica. Can you tell me what Veronica was? Uh, she was one fine lady. <laughs> she was, because... <laughs> Veronica was a search engine for Gopher. So I guess that I, I don't know if it indexed kind of crawled the way in, uh, search engines do now, but um, yeah, you, uh, Veronica, you could send a query to Veronica and it would tell you the different, you know, Gopher systems that might have the documents you're looking for. And those were the days, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So related to that, there, did, did you ever use Archie? Have you heard, no. heard of Archie? No, not Archie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, Archie may still exist, too. I don't know. But um, it, Archie was an FTP search engine. So it would... And I think the way those worked was... And this is back in, like, when universities... So this is this was definitely a, a university thing. But university would have... Um, they'd run these... They'd, they'd host, uh, like, a, an Archie service. And they would plug into their... It was, like, it was like known... They'd, they'd, like, include, like, a list of FTP sites in their Archie service. And Archie would then crawl these FTP servers on a regular basis. And then you could search that Archie you know, service for, you know, you know, files that you might be looking for. Oh, so that's how universities would kind of publish studies and things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the internet, I mean, you know, after, after the, after, I guess the defense department, I mean, the internet was really created by universities. And you, you know, you had other early on things like what was the, what was the email system? Um, that, <laughs> Oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it now. But there was a system that would, you know, uh, I don't know, I can't even think of what you'd call it. But it would, it would essentially distribute emails around. It was before SMTP, and there was, um, you know, Usenet or Usenet. I hear people calling it, but you know, the newsgroup system that was super useful. I mean, that even you know, I don't know. I guess that was the kind of like the original um, uh, trolling, and and th- that's when the <laughs> that's when society started to go. It was it was Twitter before Twitter was a thing. <laughs> Uh, people were people could be mean on using. Oh, I, bet but, you I, mean, could, I bet you could find a a, a a chiseled wall or painted wall with some trolling on it somewhere. Ah, uh, that's probably from true. back in the caveman days. And I used that was really super useful. I mean, that was it was the new it was it was you know their news groups. Um, this before like Google groups or any of these other forums. I mean, that was how you know academic types um, back in the day would. And there was a you know it seemed like there was a group for everything, everything from various cooking to you know i mean there was a great i mean there's all kinds of different programming related uh groups that you could you know get in on the conversation and you would you know you have to run a client um i think what was it called forte forte free agent or i think it was a free agent something like that um but no it would, you know you'd connect it to your and when you had a, an isp account you know they would a typically most isps you know made gave you access to a to a news server it's what's called a news server and so you'd you know you'd fire up your news software and which is like something that would run on your windows machine or whatever you could do this in via you know Unix, I, th- I guess too. But I always used uh, this Windows software called Free Agent, and you just connect to your you know plug into your news server, you know IP address or host name, whatever. And it you know you tell it you could you could list all the available groups, but that took a while because there was a lot you know probably tens of thousands. And then you would you would indicate to your software which ones you wanted to like subscribe to, and then 
you know, you would just tell it when to refresh. You'd say, okay, now refresh. And it would pull in any new messages from those groups. And then you could, you could post, you could make replies and everything. And then when you're ready, you, you know, you click like the sync button or whatever, and it, it would push up your replies. And then, you know, it was just threaded. You had threaded conversations on the internet, you know, you know, in the, gosh, in NTP, how old is that? How old is Usenet? Is that 80s? I didn't, I didn't use it until the 90s. Yeah, I don't know. But... Man, you were an early oh, kid on all this stuff, weren't you? I, I was, yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't I mean, I was, well, see, it, I was so. into... To me, it was the next thing after BBS is because I was really into BBS is like, I guess in middle school and probably early high school. And then, you know, I started, I started learning how to use Unix and how to got a, uh, a shell account. And that's when I got into all this stuff. Yeah, it was later, later in life when I got into it. So I can't claim those early days. Yeah. I did a few tinkering with hand-me-down computers and things with, with uh, basic and things like that, but never, never really plugged it up to the internet until much later. Well, I, I generally had kind of crappy computers, hand-me-downs until I, until I bought that, I got a loan. I, I had a job and I went and got a loan to buy a computer, but I had crappy computers, but you know, um, the internet was great for that because all you needed was a modem, a crappy computer and a shell account. And you're, you're cause it's all text mode. <laughs> <laughs> nice little green, green monitor. Uh, I, I think I had a, the worst monitor I ever had was a CGA monitor, which is what, eight eight colors, I think, something like that. Oh, you had color, wow. Yeah, yeah. Was it eight or 16? And I feel like EGA. EGA was 16, and then, oh man, whew, I remember my first VGA monitor. 256 colors, John. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That was a dream. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And that's when I, I, I would write these basic programs that would... Um, you know, move shapes all over the screen and um, they would even like, you know, fade between, I figured out like the kind of the algorithms to like to fade between colors and stuff. And Oh, that was, that was, that was way advanced. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to make a, an, an animation skeleton frame. So I'd have points, draw lines to points and then try to try to get them to move together. Uh, that no, that's, was, that's hard. Yeah. yeah. I've never done anything like that, but. And guess what? That was all inline one function. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course it was. The plotting points. 90, 90 go to 10. <laughs> Actually, I didn't have any go to statements. It was just one, one, one big file of just code to run and it would just run it. Mm. I was basically relying on, on the CPU's ability to consume each line for the animation frames. Like there was no throttling or, or keyframing or anything like that in, in, built into it. So it would just, I bet if I ran today, it would just go bloop. Probably so. You'd have to turn your turbo button off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, John, let's wrap up because I uh, realize I got another call. Um, but we should mention uh, we're doing our happy hour tomorrow, uh, which is Friday. For the, that'll be the April the 10th. And it's at 3 o'clock Central Time. Is that right? Yeah, 3 to 5. 3 to 5. And that's, um, what would that be? 1 o'clock West Coast Time, 4 o'clock East Coast Time. And I guess I will set up a Zoom. I'll paste it in the uh, in the uh, Slack channel. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't have access to the Slack yet, then you should go get access by going to gooddayserpodcast.com and click on community and just put your email address in and you will get uh, the proper invite to get in the Slack. Yeah. I'll probably be in and out because I just realized that's the same time my kids have piano lessons. So I'll probably be on, but I might mute for a while. Well, you don't know how to play piano, so... You don't, you know, shouldn't be a problem. You know, it's not like you're giving them the lesson, right? No, but the lesson's happening like right next to my office. No, no, they can serenade us. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and to that, I say, good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. So thank you very much to Salesforce.